2: I'm Julia Borston and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
3: Happy Friday, welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Keatonia. Big earnings movers to hit this hour. Lyft and DoorDash soar while Warner Brothers' Discovery plummets. Plus, the CEOs of Twilio, Doximity, and GoDaddy as
4: we sift through those important results this hour, Paul. Call- John, let's start the feed with the, the jobs number from this morning. Uh, far better than expected, as you may know by now. 528,000, best gain since February. Unemployment falls to 35 uh, pretty much the lowest since February of 2020. Uh, wage growth higher, up more than five year on year. All the data silencing some fears of a recession, at least for now, and leaving investors bracing for more rate hikes ahead given such hot growth. Here to help us break it down is our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli. Although uh, equities have reversed early losses, and it was interesting to hear Jan Hatzius. Of Goldman, stick with 50 for September.
1: Yeah, that's still a debate. I mean, obviously the market is, uh, you know, trying a gambit that 75 looks more likely, but it's a long way from now till the Fed meeting in the third week uh, of September. Uh, interesting that the last couple of weeks. Uh, you've really not gotten a lot of fresh data that said recession is more likely than we thought. Um, So even though I think there was a common sense out there that the rally we've seen in the equity market has mostly been about this idea that the Fed was going to, you know, come off the tightening campaign and get easier. I think it's been that in combination with the idea that maybe soft landing is a little bit less of a long shot than than we thought before. So all that stuff mixed together means that today's number has been mostly an occasion for a rotation within the market. Uh, You've seen some of the the big disinflation plays in growth come off. And then we have energy up and we have banks finally uh, coming awake. So right now, uh, a pretty palatable uh, reaction, I guess you'd have to say, if it holds this way.
3: Mike, uh, I know that these things are never simple, We try to simplify. We run the risk of oversimplifying. But I thought that part of this, a big part of this rally in the markets was based on the idea that the economy was cooling itself off so the Fed wouldn't have to do so much. This job report suggests the economy may be not cooling itself off as much as some would have hoped. So now what is the soft landing thesis uh, within that?
1: Right. It, it's certainly not really coming directly out of the jobs number, this idea that the market is decelerating in a, in a profound way. Uh, I think you could lean on the idea that it's still a little bit of a lagging indicator. You've seen job openings come down dramatically. Uh, there's been this idea of this immaculate loosening of the labor market that might be possible, which means that all you do is attack open jobs and leave the filled jobs unharmed. Um, Pretty much a stretch, I I think, uh, historically to say that's going to be uh, happening. However, that's what the numbers have told you already. But if you do look at things like uh, some of the consumer numbers have have cooled a little bit, Uh, certainly business. Uh, risk appetite seems like maybe it's wobbling uh, as you talk about cost cuts and productivity measures. And then the Treasury yield curve, if you believe that that has some kind of cyclical wisdom in it, it is also telling you that the economy is, is decelerating. Look, we got two quarters of negative GDP on first look. That's not a mirage, but it's also not really that decisive about where we are in the cycle because nominal growth strong and we had such a boom coming into it.
4: You know, some of the bulls have reminded me of people who like to line up early for concert tickets <laughs> because the thinking was there'll be a pivot one day. Right. And we want to be first in line. So we're going to line up early. But now we might be finding out the club doesn't open for another three months. I don't know. Yeah, what, you're going to you're gonna be
1: a little cold waiting for it. Uh, I think there's a chance of that. But you see, the moment of the debate about when there might be a pivot or what we really are arguing about was the first half of 2023. So we still were pretty much figuring that the Fed was going to be in tightening mode to some degree or another through the end of this year. But I think the bull case was we're in the general zone of a neutral rate. Um, And I think most importantly, the company's reporting results did not give you brand new reason to be worried about the state of the cycle and and consumer demand. It was a moderation in in, in profitability rather than it falling apart all at once.
4: Right. That's actually a good summation as we're Finally rounding the bend on uh, on the busy earnings season. Mike, stick around. I want to take a look at a couple of gig economy names today, beginning with uh, DoorDash. Uh, shares are higher this morning, delivering a beat across the board. Guidance pretty much in line with expectations. And a similar story for Lyft coming in above consensus for Q2. A miss on the Q3 revenue guide, but doesn't seem to be holding the stock back up almost 14 percent. John, on the heels of uh, what Uber said about uh, investment grade possibly down the road, shareholder returns and a lot more. Yeah, and there was certainly a lot of concern about Lyft.
3: I got to say, I'm impressed with DoorDash. We try not to be overly impressed, of course, but there was a big question about the macro impact on demand. We'd seen so much come down in e-commerce post, um, I want to say post-pandemic. Who knows when we'll really be able to safely say post-pandemic, but at least the thick of the pandemic and the lockdowns, e-commerce in general had come down, but demand still resilient at DoorDash orders growth accelerated to 23% year on year. I mean, that's something that they're able to keep that up, Carl. So, uh, you know, uh, they're not all the same.
1: What do you think, Mike? Reflects what do you think on a macro level? Uh, Some kind of equilibrium, I would say. They're able to still to to grow in in this general top line way without necessarily proving a whole lot as to whether the business model is going to You know, bear fruit. Uh, Yeah, I was just looking. Eleven months ago, the 2022 uh, Door uh, DoorDash results are supposed to be a 16 cent loss per share. Right now, it's at minus 140. Right. So a lot has happened in the last 11 months to say, okay, we thought it was going to get better much more quickly. Uh, So I think you could say from a macro read through, it's not bad. These should be loose labor market plays as well. Driver availability at Lyft was a bright spot. Uh, Multiple job holders has been a feature of these labor market reports. That's all probably to the good. I still think, though, we're in wait and see mode in terms of whether you can just trust that the profitability is going to be there. And the stocks tell you that if you look at, you know, DoorDash, since its IPO or Lyft over the last two years, it's been kind of a crash and a tentative recovery at the, at the tail end of it.
3: Yeah, Mike, but now with these jobs numbers, I'm not sure how to interpret driver availability, <laughs> given the tight market. like, Is there more driver availability because the labor market is tight in some way? I don't know. Um, that's a puzzle.
1: It's well, a- they are. You know, they, they, they obviously are the. Uh, you know, that, that sort of market maker of, you know, mediating between demand for uh, rides, which means people working is helping out, but also availability. There is this mismatch between, not to get too uh, kind of focused on the details, but this mismatch between the uh, total non-farm payrolls number and the household survey. And some people think that the multiple job holders could account for some of that, because if you add a job, to the same person who already has a job, uh, you're still employed and you were already. So that's why it doesn't affect the household surveys. Much. And to button it up and be
3: a little wonky as well, the involuntary part-time number was also higher, meaning there were people who wanted to work more hours, so maybe they were driving for DoorDash, Lyft, and Uber. Mike, thanks. Another name on the move this morning is Block Recouping. Uh, let's see. Most of its earlier losses, though now it's down a bit again. Kate Rooney joins us with a breakdown. Kate?
5: Hey, John. Yeah, Jack Dorsey's payment company reporting a loss for the third quarter in a row was profitable this time a year ago. Profits for Cash App and Square merchants missed Wall Street's uh, consensus target. Same thing with payment volume. Growth overall is slowing, and executives did say spending has been stable through July. They're not seeing an uptick in delinquencies either for afterpay. That's the buy now, pay later business. CFO Amrita Ahuja on the call saying that they're adjusting. She says Block is pulling back on spending, slowing hiring, and getting more conservative on underwriting. The CFO says, quote, we recognize the environment has changed. We're prepared to adapt and maintain discipline. And Block, she says, is focused on demonstrating greater near-term profitability as we head into what could be a more volatile macro environment. Analysts' reaction this morning, a little bit mixed. Jeffries and RBC cheering those spending cuts, while JP Morgan says that suggests Square is bracing for potentially weaker growth. Wedbush pointing out some fears of competition with Fiserv and Adyen and talked about that exposure to the consumer and small business. Analysts still have questions about how those groups will hold up with high inflation. Finally, guys, crypto blocks Bitcoin gross profit down 24%. From a year ago, they also took a $36 million loss on those Bitcoin holdings. Back to you.
3: Kate, how different was the messaging from Block, do you think, from PayPal? I mean, they both talked about being conservative, maybe cutting some costs. They're just sort of in an interesting position with Block now worth, on a market cap basis, a little less than half what PayPal is.
5: I would say Block's messaging, John, was a little more subtle. PayPal really came out with this turnaround strategy. They have the backing of Elliot, So that really was an inflection point for PayPal, whereas Block was a little bit more subtle and said, "Okay, guys, we're going to slow down on things like discretionary spending. It wasn't this total turnaround plan. It basically said what we're doing is working. Here's some evidence of what we're already doing in terms of Uh, Both companies are slowing down hiring, for example. They seem to be a little more cautious on what they need to do, but both are focused on near-term profitability and those days of growth at all costs. And spending to grow seem to be over for all these fintech companies.
3: All right, back to basic blocking and tackling (laughs) and puns. Kate, thanks. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Amazon sweeping up the competition, perhaps buying iRobot for $61 per share in an all-cash deal, at least they want to. Uh, valuing the Roomba Roomba vacuum maker at a roughly $1.7 billion, including debt. This acquisition, the latest for Amazon after last week's nearly $4 billion deal for primary care provider One Medical. But the question remains, what's the impact both on Amazon and on iRobot, the products that it puts out? I I spoke with Ring founder Jamie Siminoff. In April, he praised Amazon's takeover of his smart home security company, saying it's largely allowed Ring to operate independently while providing a supply chain boost.
6: It's now been four years, so it's actually been a while. Um, and I, I think we've actually got to a good stasis where the, there's things that we do that are nimble and fast, and, and we're able to do those. And then there's other things that, you know, Amazon, it, it's great, and we get a lot of operational efficiency from vertically integrating those with Amazon, and we've done that. So we've kind of I think we've reached like a good balance. Um, the team that came over with Ring, which I think if you look at a KPI of like what's a good acquisition versus a bad acquisition after four years, um, when you see like almost all the team is still here, I mean, our, our attrition is probably less than it was before even the acquisition.
3: thought that was an interesting detail. Joining us now with her outlook on this deal, Wall Street Journal senior per- personal technology columnist and CNBC contributor and Emmy winner. Joanna Stern, Uh, I just like saying that. Congratulations again. Yeah, every time. Um, It's interesting. I also talked with Nick Weaver, founder of Eero, uh, back in March. And similarly, both of these guys made a decision to sell based on the need to scale, some uncertainty in the macro environment. Uh, It's a good time to be big if you're trying to build hardware.
7: Yeah, I mean, hardware is hard. And in fact, when I heard this, I was thinking 1.7 for iRobot for Roombas seems kind of small, sort of low, given that they are the basically the entirety of the robot mount, vacuum market. So um, when I look at this for Amazon, I think it's a no brainer in the sense of it hits on two things they're very interested in. One smart home, two robotics. We saw this, I reviewed the Amazon Astro robot a couple of months ago. This robot isn't yet out for everyone to buy, but it was a test for Amazon and a clear indication that the company wants to get into home robotics. And in fact, I hit on that thing pretty hard because it just sat around. And I actually said in the review, why doesn't this thing vacuum the floors? So there's a really nice synergy for what they're planning to do in robotics, what they're already doing in smart homes.
3: So they got a nice R2D2C3PO possibility here, like big robot, little robot, maybe with the little one doing cheaper one doing most of the work. But they've also got drone robots now that fly around your house doing security. Um, Are we beginning to see uh, sort of a product portfolio here? Um, I'm not really seeing as much of it, the full thing at retail yet, maybe because Astro uh, hasn't hasn't gone big.
7: Yeah, and I think you hit on something really great and you you had that clip before of the Ring CEO. I mean, really looking at what they're doing, they have these independent silos that hit on the smart home. And the goal is for that to all work with Alexa. I have not seen a lot of synergy. In fact, I just got this new house And I'm setting up all these things and I've got the Ring doorbell, I've got an Eero, I've got all these different things. And they don't really talk to each other, but they talk to the Amazon Alexa platform, which then cements Amazon's role in the smart home. And of course, there are things like Amazon Key, right? So you can have your Amazon package delivered to your garage or one of your doors in your house. So I think all of that is sort of motivating towards this goal of Amazon controlling the entire home.
4: That's interesting. And and congratulations, by the way, Joanna, but I do wonder, you know, given what Logitech and Best Buy and a lot of the home goods stores have said, consumers are already done spending on their home. They're they're, they're filled with that. Now it's about going places. How does that fit in that macro uh, environment?
7: I have been having the same thought, especially as I'm sort of buying some of these things and see tons of supply issues. Right. I'm having a really hard time right now buying smart locks, certain types of categories, not only seeing the slowdown from the fact that people are now spending more on travel and getting out of the house, but also the fact that they can't keep up with some of the demand because the supply is back. So. Yeah, I think the, the thought about the Roomba, I think the, I, I really think iRobot Roomba is a long play for Amazon as they get into the robotics. I mean, thinking about these previous hires, not only have they gotten that, pa- that past IP from the companies, but again, they get the tech, they get the aqua hires here. And iRobot, Roomba has been doing this for years. I mean, they, they were this player before there was even a term smart home. Joanna, you test
3: this stuff out. Uh, iRobot's latest products, particularly Roomba, are they any good? Are, are they getting better Is it going to be something where Amazon should leave them
7: alone or do they need some help? They're really good, but I think this is the question about big tech and big questions about privacy, right? What Roomba has done really well, what the Roombas do really well is actually what that Astro has done pretty well too, right? It maps your house. It knows exactly where things are. You're looking at it here. It knew exactly where my son is that you see right there, right? It knows where it needs to go. It sees the parts of the house. It knows exactly if something's closed, how to get around it. Now, do you want all that data in the hands of Amazon? right? That's going to be the big question for people, for, for new buyers. It's going to be the question for legis- for regulation. Um, but in terms of the tech there, melding those two, right? What Amazon's already been working on in its robotics lab and what um, Roomba's had, and with many years of robotics, I think that's a, that's a pretty killer combination.
3: Huh. Well, uh, we'll see how they work it out. Um, Joanna, thank you. Thank
7: Joanna you. Joanna
3: Stern. Cloudflare and Twilio heading in opposite directions this morning, more on the results from both names when we sit down with the CEO of Twilio. After this break, Tech Check is just getting started. Check on Cloudflare jumping double digits after beating on the top and bottom lines. Company also bump, uh, bucking the trend of disappointing guidance this season, raising its revenue forecast for the year ahead, firmly above the street's expectations. Shares up more than 20 percent, Carl. And Prince saying, Matthew Prince saying that things are stabilizing after being concerned about the macro. That's that's
4: different. Yep. There's a couple of different uh, takes on a variety of issues this morning, John. Of course, as one software name flares up, another comes down. Uh, we'll watch uh, Twilio today down double digits. Uh, despite beating the street for the second quarter after current quarter guidance does come in below expectations, uh, the miss did prompt Stifel and Atlantic to downgrade to neutral, and they cut their targets by more than 50 percent. Joining us to break things down is Twilio's co-founder and CEO, Jeff Lawson. Jeff, we're always grateful uh, for you coming on. Good to see you this morning. Thanks for having me back on. So the street's kind of absorbing uh, the macro picture, uh, which makes sense. But the other complaint is a longer than anticipated transition to higher margin product. Uh, Which of the two do you think is the more powerful dynamic? Well,
8: you know, what we've always said, the point here is to grow our business and capture a lot of market in a very exciting, fast growing, very big software opportunity and to do so with profitability in calendar year of 2023. And that's exactly what we're heading towards. We continue to grow our top line incredibly fast. We're approaching $4 billion of revenue annually with a 41% growth rate in the last quarter. And we beat on uh, profit. And we continue to affirm that in 2023 for the year, we are targeting uh, profitability, which is what we've been telling investors all along. And we are laser focused on that goal. Do you need to wait for a macro to turn around? I don't think so. You know, We're looking at the macro trends that are going on. Uh, we have not seen a broad-based impact or demand change in our business so far. Uh, we've seen certain categories that have seen a lot of strength, actually, in the current environment, things like financial services, IT. We continue to see strong usage-based demand in these areas. And uh, while we do model a wide variety of macroeconomic outcomes, uh, we are looking at, you know, uh, various things that could happen in the economy. So far, we haven't seen broad-based impact to the business.
3: Hey, Jeff, great to have you on again. So you're, you're talking about profitability through slowing hiring, shifting to remote first, some some uh, real efficiency sort of moves. Alongside that, what are the industries where your customers are really seeing uh, demand that's durable? In this environment. You know, you're famously working with Uber from way back, and we see that the ride sharing and delivery names are a bit stronger than some expected. Well, I
8: think the way that we look at it is our customer engagement platform helps our customers build great durable relationships with their customers. And if you think about it, a company that's building a customer base, they have to do two things incredibly well. Number one, they have to acquire customers efficiently. And then during the lifetime of that customer, they have to sell that customer more things and create more value. And that equation essentially, acquiring customers efficiently, Our platform helps customers do that better. We have this great story of uh, Domino's Pizza who increased their efficiency of ad spend by 700% by using Segment, the customer data platform. So acquiring customers more efficiently is on everybody's mind today, but then growing those customers over time, and that's lifetime value. And our platform also unlocks the ability for companies to do better personalization, better marketing to their own customers, provide better service and support, and provide better product experiences. And those all increase lifetime value. And so this combination of lowering customer acquisition costs and increasing lifetime value of customers, I think this is what's on the mind of pretty much every executive that I talk to. And so I think there's a lot of relevancy across pretty much every industry that you'd imagine for the kinds of things that Twilio offers with our customer engagement platform.
3: It is, and so is Omnichannel, especially because the sort of uh, e-commerce-only approach, I mean, even during the pandemic, it wasn't only, but e-commerce-led approach seems to have faded off a bit. Um, If you're you're really moving toward being a a customer engagement platform writ large, how does the in-person experience and tying that back into being smarter about data, how does that play into it? Uh,
8: that's a great question. In fact, we had a fantastic story from a bricks and mortar and e-commerce uh, retailer this quarter, a uh, Fortune 100 retailer uh, who is has uh, adopted Twilio Flex, our contact center platform, to help bridge the in-store experience with the virtual store experience across voice, messaging, video, chat, and more, and really build one profile of their customer that spans your in-store activities and your e-commerce activities all so they could serve their customers better. And that goes, by the way, across sales and service the whole life cycle of a customer. And so I think companies are getting smarter. Before the pandemic, it was like, oh, mostly about, you know, in-store. And then over here, you had a separate e-commerce thing. In the pandemic, it swung a lot to the e-commerce side. And now people are saying, okay, so we've got e-commerce has gone bigger. People are returning to the stores. How do we actually bridge these together and create a holistic experience and treat you as one customer? And I think that's a great opportunity for Twilio. And our customer data platform, this is what really a CDP is designed for. And Segment helps you take signals that are coming off of in-store purchases, online activity, online purchases, customer support interactions, marketing interactions, and merge them all together into one profile that lets you actually do smarter personalization, better ad buys, and be smarter about your customers.
4: Hmm. You know, Jeff, one thing I'm not hearing from you uh, is what we've heard about in a lot of um uh, employee memos, dark times ahead, we got to be smarter on staffing, uh, we, we got to be very nimble, productivity needs to improve, uh, basically the hunker down mentality. Uh, what do you, as a tech CEO, what do you think when you hear about memos from other companies that reflect that? Oh,
8: I mean, that is the truth. So, you know, inside the company, we are ruthlessly prioritizing our objectives, looking at the ROI of all of our spend. We have slowed down our hiring. We've closed several of our offices that frankly, weren't getting used at the same rate as they were before the pandemic. So we are very focused on efficiency uh, and making sure that every dollar we spend is going towards building durable growth and ultimately towards profitability in 2023 for Twilio. Now we are cautiously optimistic about the demand environment and about what's going on in the economy. Um, We are seeing continued demand for our product, which is great to see, but we're also uh, very much aware of of the various things that are going on in the macro environment that could change that situation. So like other tech CEOs, we are laser focused on efficiency on ruthlessly prioritizing our most important priorities which for us is our software layer and growing that software part of our business and profitability in 2023.
4: Jeff really good uh, explanation of where the company is uh, on a day coming on whether the whether the quarter is good or bad. Great to see you. Uh, Jeff Lawson Thank it's you really Thanks Warner Brothers Discovery
3: shares slumping more than 16%. Why and what the company plans to do with HBO Max is next. Stay with us. We're back in two.
1: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until...
2: The Singapore presentation is at
5: 3 a.m.
1: The office was shocked
2: when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime.
1: Record and present anytime with Canva presentations
5: at Canva.com. Designed for work.
0: Good morning. I'm Christina Partzinevelis and here's what's happening at this hour. The Islamic Jihad militant group is threatening to retaliate after a senior commander was killed today by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. The Palestinian health ministry says that in total, seven people are dead and 40 wounded. Israel estimates around 15 people were killed. The attack comes amid rising tensions in the area, raising fears of a larger military conflict. Two of the people injured last night by a lightning strike near the White House have died. They are identified as a man and a woman in their 70s from Wisconsin. Two others remain in critical condition. The White House says it is saddened by the deaths and praying for those still fighting for their lives. And President Biden is celebrating this morning's report that payrolls grew by 528,000 and the unemployment rate fell to 3.5 percent last month. In a statement, he says it shows his economic plan to rebuild the middle class is working while acknowledging there is more work to do. And just minutes ago, the White House announced that on Monday, Biden and the First Lady will go to eastern Kentucky, which has been hit by massive flooding. Guys, back over to you. John? Nice
3: Christina, today. yeah, thank you. Thanks. One name surging this morning. Carvana results out last night. It was a beat. The company selling more cars this quarter than last. The stock was up 40% earlier in the session, up more than 30 now. But heading into the report, the stock was down 86% for the year. Part of today's action then could be a short squeeze. As of July, it's one of the most shorted stocks with about 40% of its float pledged short, according to S3 Partners. That's reminiscent of Coinbase's 40% surge
4: earlier this week, Carl. It's amazing how you can double and still be down 88, John. Meantime, a big week for streaming. Results from multiple names, as you know. Warner Brothers Discovery finally unveiling a timeline for their combined HBO Max Discovery Plus service. Stock is the biggest laggard on the S&P this morning, although because it ran up into the print, really only about uh, the lowest level since the beginning of the month. Julia Borsten has more on the story. Morning, Julia.
2: That's right. Shares are down about 17% right now. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav pl- painted a grim picture of what he called, quote, additional unexpected challenges ahead. Up against the threats of inflation and a recession, amid a billion and a half in streaming losses in the quarter, Zaslav laid out new ways they are going to try to make money. As they work to roll out the combined HBO Max Discovery Plus service starting next summer, they are exploring a free ad-supported version. They'll also work to license more content externally, and they're going to try to preserve the theatrical box office. And they say they won't content onto the streamer. Wells Fargo downgrading Warner Discovery to equal weight, warning, quote, the assets are great, but the risks and capital structure create a greater range of outcomes. Succeeding in streaming is hard enough, so we prefer names without the added baggage for now. Meanwhile, Paramount is trading down after a downgrade by JP Morgan to underweight. They write, quote, pay TV declines continue to be a substantial headwind while the evolution of the film industry is more uncertain. And speaking of the film industry, AMC shares. They are down on quarterly results that were pretty much in line with expectations. We see shares are down about 4% right now. The company did issue a special dividend to reward those ape investors. CEO Adam Aaron was bullish about the future of movies. And to his credit, we are hearing more from those media companies about wanting to protect that box office in the theatrical window. Guys.
4: Uh, interesting, Julia. We had Jessica Reefer like a moment ago uh, from B of A talking about uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, her general point was that um, she didn't bring numbers down uh, quite enough, uh, that AT&T really handed them a bit of a hot potato. But that interestingly, if they can get past some of the balance sheet pressures, they have the potential to be arguably, she said, one of the most influential streaming companies in the world.
2: Yeah, and what she's referring to really is the combination of these assets. Now, as we look at the evolution of what is this streaming landscape, what are we talking about here? We're really seeing a shift away from these a la carte services, you know you just want Disney Plus, you just maybe want ESPN Plus to these bundles. And we've seen it with Disney, which is reporting next week, this idea of really pushing consumers towards this bundle of ESPN Plus, Disney Plus and Hulu. And what Warner Discovery has the advantage of is they have all of that content that's the reality TV content, HGTV cooking From discovery plus if they bundle that together with a premium hbo hbo max content then they could really have enough of a variety of content even throw in cnn in there of that live news to make that a new kind of mini bundle and we really are seeing this shift towards these mini bundles and the question is how many of these mini bundles are people going to subscribe to um and how much will they be relying on advertising to make sure that they're profitable
3: julia i'm also struck by yet another evidence point in this sort of unraveling of the idea of a la carte as a savior, high quality content on TV delivered to direct to consumer, kind of eliminating the need for movie theaters on one end. And, you know, because consumers are willing to pay subscription for it, eliminating the need for advertising on the other. Zaslav seems to have come in here and said, you know what? The traditional playback book or something closer to it actually makes a lot of sense Let's cut these costs. The investment won't be worth it and get disciplined in a different way. Am I reading that wrong?
2: Well, no, I think, I think you're right there. I think what was so interesting about what Zaslov said is he was trying to repudiate the strategy of Jason Kyler, his predecessor who was running H, you know, those Warner Media assets. And he said... The decision to put all of their films direct on streaming um, is not something they want to continue with going forward. They want to make sure that they have this separate theatrical window. And instead of putting all their eggs in the streaming basket, they also want to generate revenue from licensing content. This is something um, that we've seen all the media companies sort of move away from. There are some exceptions like Sony. Sony has really been the arms dealer, as they like to call themselves, for these streaming wars. But what we've seen Warner Discovery and others do just say, hey, let's keep our best content and really focus our best content on our streamer. Zaslov is saying we need to make sure we have these diverse revenue streams and it's not just about our streaming service.
3: Things go in cycles. Julia, thanks. Meanwhile, shares of digital me- medical player Doximity are plunging this morning. We'll have More on the business, the outlook and the rest with CEO Jeff Tangney after the break. Don't go away. Check in on health tech. Shares of Doximity plunging this morning after the company slashed its full year guidance. A slowdown in upsells, which account for 10 to 15 percent of annual revenue. Our headwind here. Joining us now for an exclusive interview, Doximity CEO Jeff Tangney. Jeff, welcome. I think it's so interesting. You've got a large share of doctors and nurse practitioners on your platform, but there's something going on with, is it pharma marketing spend that's really the issue here?
6: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, John. And obviously, a tough day for us as we beat yesterday on revenue and profit, but we had to lower our top line uh, by 6%. Um, Yeah, as you say, we work with all of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and all the top 20 hospitals. At Doximity, we're building the physician cloud. So we help over 80% of U.S. physicians digitize their practice with telehealth tools, e-signature schedules, uh, and keeping up on the latest treatments. And yeah, the surprise for us here is, you know, healthcare is known to be recession resistant. So while we still expect to grow 25% this year on the top line, we were surprised by a bit of a slowdown, a bit of a macro headwind this quarter. So it seems that healthcare isn't immune to macro, but at least we are fully vaxxed uh, as a 6% top line hit is, is less than some other industries.
3: So tell me about plans for diversification in your model as well. A lot of that tilted toward marketing. There are also things like recruiting challenges, within uh, your your customer set. Where are you growing? Where are you investing? Is your plan to stay largely structured as you are?
6: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Actually, the bright spot this last quarter for us was actually our hospital business and around uh, recruiting as physicians are getting back on planes, going out and catching up on all that deferred maintenance these past few years. Uh, and So we're really proud to help doctors with that, finding the best opportunities as they find their new normal. Uh, we also did great with our hospital clients uh, with our telehealth product, which uh, had over a third of all U.S. physicians now on our enterprise platform, and did over 200,000 telehealth calls per workday this past quarter. So those are our bright spots. You're right on the pharmaceutical side; we are seeing again a bit of that headwind as as there's a bit of belt tightening. Uh, but you know, there our main cycles actually aren't midyear; they're they're end of year, and so again, it's a six percent hit to our top line. And our bottom line is still very strong. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're expecting 43% EBITDA margins for the year. And we did $43 million in free cash flow last quarter, which was nearly half our revenue. Jeff, I keep hearing
3: that uh, telehealth, you know, the trend had been, of course, spiking upward during the thick of the pandemic. But it's actually come back down. People are going in person back into offices uh, are you seeing that with how your technology uh, is playing out? And to what degree are you investing in a future where you expect telehealth to spike again or grow significantly?
6: Well, I mean, we're still hiring. We're investing a lot. We think healthcare has a long ways to go in digitization. And telehealth is, this last quarter is actually our first full quarter in the United States of what we hope is new normal, right? No major outbreaks or major lockdowns. And again, we saw a slightly up upward trend in telehealth visits, again, over 200,000 per day in the quarter. And what we're seeing really is working with telehealth is not so much maybe that first visit, but those follow-on visits. So we serve, you know, Main Street hospitals and clinics. And while you may see the doctor for that upfront visit, that follow-up visit is so much more convenient, saves the patient a couple hours of driving and waiting in a crowded patient waiting room to just do that 10 or 15 minute follow-up check-in visit via telehealth. So we're seeing telehealth, I think, continue uh, to grow uh, among this Main Street hospital uh, and and clinics. Ah, Well, uh, an
3: important trend to watch for sure. Jeff, thank you. CEO of Doximity. Thanks, John.
4: Meantime, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ether on pace for their first down week in five reports that every crypto exchange, not just Coinbase, is being investigated by the SEC. That was sourced to a Senate staffer. We're gonna watch that story, of course, after a nice run for crypto in general. Dow has reversed its uh, losses, now once again, down 120. Take a look at shares of Global Blood Therapeutics, surging 10% here on a Wall Street Journal report that Pfizer is in advanced talks to buy the company for $5 billion. The drug company makes a sickle cell disease drug that was recently approved. We will continue to watch that story in the biotech space. John? For sure, Carl. Thanks. And let's meanwhile get a
3: gut check on Expedia, that stock in the red, despite a Q2 earnings beat. Strong summer demand driving lodging bookings to record levels. But... One area of concern, average lodging rates only up 3%, while competitors like Booking Holdings and Airbnb are still showing strong double-digit growth there. We're gonna continue to watch those trends. Tech Check is back in a moment. Let's turn to another name delivering Q2 earnings this week. GoDaddy, posting revenue in line with expectations, up 9% year-over-year, year, but lowering guidance. Here for an exclusive interview, let's bring in GoDaddy CEO, Amon Bhutani. Amon, good to see you. Um, I'm Watching overall e-commerce trends, what Shopify has reflected, it seems like direct-to-consumer is going through a difficult time right now where some scale players like Amazon are are doing better. What are you seeing from GoDaddy's perspective?
9: John, our customer is the micro business customer and it's only over the last year or two that we've started to offer them e-commerce services. And commerce on the internet is the biggest opportunity for them. So what we see is that they continue to adopt our commerce services, and we're making it simpler and simpler for them. We're launching new products that allow them to take payments online in super simple ways. Our latest innovative product allows them to do it even without signing up for a website.
3: Yeah, and your applications and commerce segment is growing fastest, but I wonder... What's driving that, right? So uh, Amazon seems to be doing overall particularly well. You got challenges if you're trying to do targeted advertising based on some changes that Apple and to some extent Google are doing or planning to do. How much is there this sort of uh, big company toll that direct-to-consumer companies uh, are having to pay and how are you helping them pass that?
9: Yeah, I think the thing is, John, we're so early in the cycle for micro-businesses, right? And these folks are resilient. They've got to come in and make tomorrow work. Excuse me. It doesn't matter what the economy is bringing. It doesn't matter what the competitive pressures are. For many of them, this is a new opportunity. And because it's so early for them, even though e-commerce as a whole is sort of coming back to its natural curve, it's still a net new opportunity for them because, you know, a year or two years ago, e-commerce for them was zero. So, even if it's a bit down year over year for some verticals, and as an example, we see services do quite well, even year over year, right? Which is great for GoDaddy because we tend to lean more services than product-based. So, you know, those services businesses, they have built now an online presence. They're doing some transactions online, and it's helping them year over year as well.
4: Hey, Aman, I wonder how you're thinking about uh, the pace of small and medium-sized business creation, uh, in other words, if we get a new wave of layoffs, particularly in tech, do those <coughs> engineers uh, ostensibly start a business of their own and then come to you for service?
9: You know, when we look over the last 20 years, some micro-businesses are formed in good times, and bad times. In fact, we have data going all the way back to the great recession where similar things happen and lots of micro businesses were formed. I wanna keep stressing the point, our customer is the micro business customer. They have a side hustle. You know, They wanna make things happen. So we'll see them in bad times too, and we'll see them really work hard to make their business grow. And what we provide them is the seamless intuitive tooling, the human care, which you know we get on the phone with them, we help them grow their business. And again, in good times and bad, Those micro businesses, those side hustles are going to be formed, and those cohorts perform really well for her. You know, one of the data points I've shared in the past, that cohort from the Great Recessions delivered 1.9 billion in revenue over the last 14 years. And that was a bad economic time.
4: Right. Um, Is that, I assume that's going to be felt most acutely in North America. What about in Europe, though, where some of the macro pressures uh, are, are arguably a lot stronger to the downside?
9: Yeah, actually, I talked about it at earnings. We did see more pressure for our customers in Europe right now. And, you know, we're very hopeful that things will sort of do better in Europe. But like you said, the U.S. economy continued to be strong and we saw a good growth. We saw 12 percent growth in the U.S. And in Europe, our focus is how do we support our customers? How do we make it simpler? And we're hopeful that some of the macro factors will sort of make it easier over the next quarter or two. Uh,
3: Reflecting the challenges and opportunities for all size businesses GoDaddy CEO Aman Bhutani. Thank you.
9: Thank you for having me, John.
4: Biggest gainer on the NAS this morning at Lassian. Revenue up 36 year on year for the quarter as executive forecast growth ahead, even in a recessionary environment. We are back after one last break. Stay with us.
3: One more thing before we go and that's the latest on Tweelon, it's my nickname for the legal battle between Twitter and Elon Musk. Julia Borston is back with that. Julia.
2: Are we calling it Tweelon now, John? Let's see if we can make this a thing. Twitter responding to Elon Musk's countersuit which was filed last week and unsealed unsealed Late yesterday, Musk saying that Twitter concealed the number of inauthentic accounts and the number of users who see ads accusing Twitter of fraud. Twitter responding to Musk's allegations in a 127-page filing, saying that Musk's story that he was, quote, hoodwinked by Twitter into signing a $44 billion merger agreement is, quote, as implausible and contrary to fact as it sounds. They also say that he's just trying to get out of the deal after the stock market and his own personal wealth declined in value. Now, last night at Tesla's annual meeting, Musk weighed in on his interest in Twitter. Take a listen.
9: I think in the case of Twitter, since I use it a lot, um, shoot myself in the foot a lot, you know, uh, dig my grave, etc. But, uh, you know, I think it's I, I do understand the product quite well, so I think I've got a good sense of, of where, to, where to point the engineering team uh, at Twitter to make it radically better.
2: Susquehanna did downgrade Twitter shares on the pending takeover and all the associated disruption, but it is worth noting that Twitter shares are up more than 1% this morning. Guys?
4: Uh, Julia, Brett Taylor uh, tweeted yesterday saying that uh, his claims are three things, factually inaccurate, legally insufficient, and commercially irrelevant. I guess I'm wondering, how are viewers supposed to process Musk's complaint uh, if you've in fact read the merger agreement?
2: Well, look, what's so interesting about that 127-page complaint is that they quote directly from what Musk's lawyers are saying, and then they refute every one of these arguments. They also say that they are looking forward to the trial, which is set for October 17th. So Twitter really reiterating how confident they feel in their case Um, and the way that they laid everything out in that that filing was particularly notable just because it was like, here's what he says and here's our response. (laughs) Right.
4: Uh, Julia, thanks. Uh, The saga continues. Uh, John, as for next week, we talked about CPI on the way uh, coming off of the jobs number this morning, along with quite a bit of retail. uh, Kohl's and Home Depot and Walmart will get us started beginning on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. Let's get to the judge who's in the house and the half.
2: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11
7: a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses,